this is a bit different to my usual ones because sometimes I'll do an interview and then I'll decide later, oh, this might be suitable for some of the other podcasts that I've got. But I've actually made a decision this time prior because based on what my guest is actually going to be talking about. So it's going to go on the speaking podcast, the meditation podcast, and the awakening podcast. Obviously, I'm a podcasting coach and I've got another one, Learn Polish podcast. You find everything about me, buyer.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, an addiction specialist. Please welcome Kavi Shell. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And yes, as you, you mentioned, I am an addiction specialist, but my career has always been in the wellness space. It started off too many years ago as a midwife, and I've just always found that my calling or my passion and love has been promoting and providing primary health care for people. Yeah. No, excellent, excellent. So, uh, like, I mean, I, I obviously we're going to go through, you know, all of these, but let let's start off on the say the the speaking because I I know that you you spoke nationally and internationally, but you might let me know your speaking journey it, just from a young age as well. How you kind of, you know, what way you were as a youth? Right. Oh my goodness, good question. From a youth, I think like most kids in school, we were required to do a speech once a year in front of the class, that sort of thing. And I, I probably wasn't atypical in being nervous and not loving it. I do have one memory that stands out. I remember I did something on the police and I think I, I started by saying, here come the pigs. And I don't think it went over too well. I think, you know, I was a small kid. So that's in terms of, you know, elementary school public speaking. Um, and then, yes, as a midwife, I was very involved in the politics and having midwives reg regulated and legislated in Canada. And so I was the president of our provincial and professional organization. So I coordinated national and provincial conferences. And that's where I first did my speaking in speaking to other midwives and to consumers of midwives on the importance in educating people on midwifery. And from there, it just kind of snowballed as my career evolved. I was talking about different things and different interests. Um, at one point, I was speaking internationally on what my topic was called the midwifery of dying. And that was basically um, creating the same kind of ownership in our end of life experience that we have when we're bringing life into the world. So making sure that when we are faced with terminal illness or whatever the case may be, that we have a voice and that we have informed choice and that we can direct our end of life care. And, and so a lot of times my audience would be other professionals in the healthcare arena. And then certainly I did a lot of speaking in the yoga space and in the addiction space. And those topics were, were co-mingling because with my research and graduate work, just really discovered and put into practice how yoga, meditation and physical activity are more effective in treating addiction and alcoholism than traditional forms of therapy. So that saw me um, speaking to addiction specialists, to addiction centers, but also to the whole yoga community. And so having to really 
hone the craft of speaking to target your audience, even though the actual subject matter in itself may be the same topic, your audience is different. And so learning how to guide and craft those discussions quite differently to, to have your me message be relevant to those audiences. Excellent. And just on the, the midwife, because like with people that experience trauma during that, whether it's a stillborn or they've got a disability, because mm. most people, they're not expecting that. And maybe perhaps you could give us some kind of advice on that for, for those unfortunate to, to go through such a trauma. Yes, I think for those traumas, the best you can do is just be very present and own and honor the grief and the confusion and the anger and the loss that someone's experiencing. Those losses are very real. Uh, my own personal story, I have seven children and I did have one miscarriage um, through that, through those years that I was having children. And even though I have a large family, that loss is as real to me today and to my husband as it was in and often we'll think back at that time and we will still years later be overcome with emotion and tears. And so in a way it was a gift in the sense that I can truly appreciate the grief that a woman goes through and the trauma. It is a deep seated trauma that is intrinsic into the mind, body and spirit of the woman, that loss of a life, if, as you said, you have a stillborn or there's a complication at birth, or you do have a child that has a disability that you didn't know about. Um, if it's something beforehand where the baby was diagnosed prenatally, again, it's, it's providing as much information, education, setting up support systems for groups that may help with that kind of disability or that syndrome or whatever the case may be. So again, it's information I always find is so key in preparing people and helping them through all of those steps of the journey. Oh, beautiful. And I'm just curious because I know of a person here in Poland, they were told that their ch child was going to be Down syndrome and did they mm -hmm. want to terminate and they decided not to. And the child was perfect. And I'm just wondering, from your experience, has there been, is there a case where you have to kind of, do you really trust the information that you're given? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one. Um, a lot of, there can be false positives. That's for certain. And so when I was actively practicing as a midwife and someone was, we would, before, prior to legislation, before midwives in Canada were working in that gray area it wasn't illegal, but we weren't integrated into the healthcare system, say as in the UK was prior, prior to Canada becoming regulated. So we would have women see their physician and of course they would be offered genetic testing and other sorts of tests to check on the well-being of the baby. So one thing I would always have a discussion, a frank discussion. So if you get this information, I think it's really important to know what you may want to do with the information before you receive it. If you know that 100% that you would terminate the pregnancy, then, then you have your decision. If you feel that you would keep the child but would want to know so that you could set up support systems, 
then again, provide the information. So I think knowing what you would want to do in most cases, and of course, we're human, we change our mind. We may think I know very clearly what I would do if I had a positive diagnosis, say for Down syndrome. However, when we're actually in that situation, our minds and hearts may change and we may be given more strength and power to maybe carry on with a pregnancy that we thought we may not be equipped with. And then we also have to look at the, the science and there are false positives and there are, are false negatives. And so what do we do with that? We cannot definitively say, even though the, the measures and controls for testing are improving, but as you say, there can be those situations where someone is given a diagnosis and they go ahead with the pregnancy. And in their case, you know, they were blessed with a healthy child. Not that having a child with Down syndrome is not a blessing. It's a whole different set of blessings. So I don't want your audience to think that I was implying anything there, but it's a very tricky situation. And I think, again, being there with support and education and giving them a solid foundation from which they can proceed is always the best course of action. Excellent, excellent. And just finally on that, since we're on that topic, that I'm just curious as well, because um, I remember my eldest child when uh, she was born, uh, the, the mother didn't have an epidural and you know, just that was the way she was planning. And in another ca case, my youngest son, she was planning the same, but then get, did get it. And during the birth of my eldest daughter, I remember the, the, the lady that was there did and you could see the difference in the child so like my thoughts were that is that going into the child i know you're kind of making it easier for the birth but is it something that like people are encouraging them to maybe use the meditation and the breath work i know it's everybody is different mm -hmm. and the pain mm -hmm. factor and everything and me as a man can never kind of know what it's like but i'm just curious like what kind of science has been done about injecting these things that actually it can you know go into the child well, the medications definitely cross the placenta and they do go into the baby. Um, usually those medications aren't long lasting, but they can have an impact. What certainly can have an impact is the emotional, mental and spiritual state of mind of, of the mom. And that can be through the whole course of the pregnancy and not just the delivery itself. If throughout the entire pregnancy, your you know, you've been suffering from anxiety and depression and stress, and it hasn't been a very calm pregnancy and that the birth also perhaps was traumatic or whatever the case may be. You can see that imprint on an individual. That's not always the case, but you can look back and you can make these connections. Now, of course, as you said, um, having a more calm birth also can can leave a positive imprint on, on the baby. And I think it is unfortunate that more women don't know that there are ways that, that it is possible to have a very positive birthing experience without needing to have epidurals or Demerol, or now they're giving fentanyl or whatever the case may be for pain medication. I really feel that we've lost as women our a birthing culture and our culture as women supporting women that that kind of whole history that maybe a century ago was just 
ingrained. Yes, your mother and grandmother may have been at the birth and they would have been very encouraging. It was just in a very natural process. We've really lost any sense of that today. And it is a, a hyper-medicalized event in most cases. And it really goes through different cycles. You know, in the 1990s and early 2000s, we were, I'll speak for in Canada, we were going through perhaps a, a more of a, a downswing of the medicalization of birth. And the use of epidurals was declining, episiotomies, intervention was declining. Now we're seeing a huge upswing again, and it has become a very highly medicalized, very interventionist process again. Now, where is that coming from? We'd have to really dig down at the data. I think it comes from both sides. I think women uh, don't really know that they can give birth without intervention, without medication. Some women definitely want it, insist on it. They don't want to have to experience any sort of discomfort. Some of it is coming from the medicalized profession to manage and contain pregnancies so that it can be a very uh, predictable event because, you know, as you know, childbirth isn't predictable. It can, you can have a long first stage of labor, a short second, and it can ebb and flow. And so keeping it medicalized certainly keeps it within a certain time frame, within a certain box that is very easy to manage for the medical professionals involved. So there are many factors contributing, but you're right. Um, what we experience during the labor and pregnancy can certainly have an impact or an imprint on, on the child. And we can see that. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So I suppose, like getting into the meditation and the yoga, you might tell me your kind of journey and the types of meditation. I mean, I've seen, I've listened to some on the YouTube channel, and it's it's lovely to be honest. Which is so, I'm just curious, your kind of whole journey in that field. Yeah, um, I think for me, my yoga journey started really as a physical practice. I was very physically active, and it was just part of a program I was doing. It was like the one day of rest was this intense power yoga. And so I got into it and, you know, full disclosure, I was like the total hippie commune person in my twenties. And so coming into yoga later in life, um, I was a little leery of getting into the whole, like at that point I was a little like, I'm not getting into the whole oming and chanting. This is just a physical thing for me. I need to, for the flexibility, the muscle tone, the strength, it's going to be a physical thing. I don't want to be disingenuine and, you know, pretend I'm, you know, some yogi. Now, the funny thing is that the further I got into yoga, the more spiritual it became. And it was less and less about the physical part. The physical part was there to get me to have the, the space and the stillness to meditate and to go inward. And when I was working in addiction, that's when the meditation really came in. I was a director at a residential addiction center and I'd work with our care team, with the psychologists, the other addiction specialists, and knowing that the research was really pointing towards yoga and meditation and physical activity having this tremendous impact, I would, at our team meetings, we would discuss where the clients were. And I would be able to develop these guided meditations that would help the clients where they were at in their recovery journey. And it was truly a really powerful, beautiful thing. 
And I realized that I was meditating in a different form. I love guided meditations. I find that they're a great way, especially for people who find it very hard to quiet the mind. And people have many misconceptions about what meditation is, and we can go into that. But I really realized that I was hiking all the time, that that's where my time comes in to be alone in nature and physically active. And I'd always take time when I get to a certain peak or, and I would just sit in meditation and it would just fill me and renew me and give me that peace and tranquility and that connection with God and the universe that I was, I was really needing. So there are many forms of meditation that we can engage in. And I, I, I just kind of muse all the time thinking I was just so very clear. I'm not getting into all that. You know, I'd been there. I didn't want to be disingenuous. And now that's the part that I just love and speaks to me so much. Excellent. And prior to recording, I was admiring the painting behind you, the surfboard. And yes. I mean, I, I find like, even if you're surfing, that's like a form of meditation because you're totally present in what you're doing, whether you're fishing, whatever you're doing, but like yes. surfing because the peaceness, I mean, I, obviously you have the waves, but then there's the calm as well. And I think you come out energized and I, it's not that you come out tired from surfing. And I believe all of these different things are a form of meditation. Oh, definitely. And one thing that I love to encourage people to do, especially if you you can't go surfing, you don't live somewhere where you can get off hike, hiking or you may not have a lot of green space around you, is even in your day, even if you're um, walking down the street or if you're at your desk in an office, to just all of a sudden, very spontaneously, just stop. And if you're sitting at a desk, just put both palms down, plant your feet, and just close your eyes for even 30 seconds and just deep breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth or mid stride somewhere. Just stop and go into mountain pose and just again, close the eyes and just in 30 seconds and you open your eyes and you're just it just grounds you. And it's amazing. We have this gift available to us that we can engage in and participate that just recenters and refocuses us so easily that I think people feel you have to have the meditation pillows, you have to have the right clothing, you have to, you know, have incense or whatever the case may or misconceptions may be, but it's just available, as you say, it's when you're surfing, it's when you're doing anything that just puts you in a certain framework. Yeah. Like I've got wild cats now and, you know, I feed them <laughs> and I just sometimes I just sit and watch them just enjoying their food. And, you know, it just keeps my energy levels up and I, it just got a feel good factor and just simple things like that, that you're kind of, <laughs> you're just present constantly, I think is the secret. Right. It's funny when you're saying that, I'm just realizing, you know, there are a few things in life that we can just stare at for a long time and get lost. I would say one, our newborn babies. And I feel like really that's just such a gift from God. It's just looking at a pure source of goodness, just from the source, just pure. And we get lost in that. And there must be a reason why as individuals we're drawn to that connection of just purity. You know, it's just pure joy, love, and just awe of these babies. The other thing is a fire you know, sitting in front of a bonfire, you just get lost and waves, 
you can just sit and it's all just really connection to the elements and and everything around us in this beautiful world. And you mentioned about kind of grounding yourself. There was a guy, you know, people wouldn't do the scientific tests on that, but a guy done it himself. I don't know. Did he have 60 people and he was connecting, grounding them to the art when they were sleeping and everything. And the results were incredible. They were all recovering from illnesses they had and everything. So we know it works. Oh, it's amazing. Truly. Yeah. So main thing is the, the gray drinking. So I know that's something. Mm-hmm. So you might explain exactly what it is first for those that, that, that have never heard of that term. Yeah. So gray drinking is you're not an alcoholic, but you realize your relationship with alcohol has become unhealthy. And so honestly, it I had never really heard the term. And as an addiction specialist, when I heard it, I thought, oh, sh- oh shit, that's me. <laughs> and, uh, and honestly, through COVID, it was it just kind of happened. It was, you know, I've always enjoyed some drinks in social settings or, you know, a glass of wine, cooking dinner and that sort of thing. But what I noticed is it was becoming a a daily thing for me. Um, I would have a glass of wine while I was making dinner. I'd have another glass, you know, with dinner and maybe another, you know, throughout the rest of the evening. Now, this could have been over the course of six, seven hours. So I was never intoxicated, but it was certainly just becoming um, a habit. It was something I was looking forward to. I would, you know, set up little rubrics and schemes to give myself permission, you know, my to-do list. I'm a very organized to-do list kind of person. And, you know, I'd have to have everything checked off on that to-do list before I could have that bottle of wine in the evening. So you know, I may be frantically doing something to, to to reward myself with that glass of wine. And so I think for people, if you have those thoughts of, you know, am I drinking too much? And you start to question, like, am I drinking too much? Or, you know what, I'm going to take a break from drinking for a week, or I really need to do sober October, or I'm going out to dinner tonight, but I'm only going to have one drink. And you know, thinking in your head, that's going to be a challenge. Um, the rest of your life, you may have everything together. You're great at your workspace. You have healthy relationships. You're physically fit. You're, you know, it's not your alcohol consumption isn't problematic, but you're really questioning. Chances are you're a great drinker. And so I do, you know, I think that's an important thing to listen to your intuition when it starts speaking to you about some of your your choices and patterns of behavior and relationships, we really need to honor that and listen. And so that's what I've been doing. And I created a gray drinking reset for people to help get, to help them change these patterns. Because if you're like me, it's really tricky. And I'll be honest, when I made the decision, um, I'm a Monday person. So it was like, okay, on Monday, I'm going to stop. And Sunday, I'm realizing, oh, man, Monday, I've got a full day. It's going to be really, I'm going to be exhausted. I'm really going to want that glass of wine to help me unwind at night. So I put it off to Tuesday. So don't think because you're not an alcoholic that it's just going to be like this to change those patterns, to set yourself up for success in different ways. And so I encourage you just to to listen and, and to start to make some changes. 
And I mean, to be honest with you, I found that during the lockdown as well. I mean, I I don't get drunk. I, I mean, it just like, you know, if I'm cooking duck or something like that or a steak, I love to have a glass of red wine with it. You know, and when it's summer in the evening, you know, a bear. And it just, but I was conscious of that. And I, I, I like I said, okay, I want to go off this for a month. Just make sure that I'm not. But then did went off it for a month, but then kind of got into the routine again and then took another month off. And then I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I'm going from one extreme to the other. Yes. And isn't that crazy? As humans, we are just so conflicted. We may decide, okay, I'm going to eat better. So for this month, I'm going to eat really clean, no refined sugar, whatever speaks to you. And then when you're done that month, you know what you do? You go out and you have a piece of cake. You know, you do your 30 days not drinking and you celebrate by, you know, having a beer. I don't know why we do this, but we do. So it's a very individualistic thing, gray drinking. And unlike alcoholism or addiction, where it's a a clinical disease where it is just a given that you won't be able to drink. You won't, and obviously you won't be able to engage in drug use. Um, Gray drinking, it's about creating new patterns of behavior and awarenesses. And for some individuals, it may be they realize, you know what, I don't want to drink at all. Like, why am I doing this? I can go without it. It's extra calories. It's really a toxin going into my body. So why am I doing it? Other people may say, you know what, I was drinking every day a few glasses and I realized I can just have one or two throughout my week and that's okay and I really enjoy it and I'm not overdoing it. So it's about creating a healthy relationship. I'm not here to dictate what someone should do. What I do encourage and what I do want people to do is take a break and they can start with a little 10-day reset. I have a free 10 day reset PDF that you can download. And if you find at the end of the 10 days, you want to go further then I have a 30 day program. I have a book coming out for 30 days, but what it's about is making an informed decision because I truly think that when you, you are drinking, it's hard to make that informed decision. You're enjoying it. It's become a pattern. Um, and it involves so many other things. You know, what do we do with our friends? If, that's always been part of our socializing. You know, we can go to our friends and say, hey, do you think I'm drinking too much? I'm, I'm starting to wonder. And they may say to you, of course you don't. You don't drink any more than we do, but we may all be drinking too much. So it, it's hard to gauge and go sometimes to friends and family for a real objective opinion. And so that's why I really ask individuals to honor that inner guide your inner divine that holy spirit that intuition and listen to it like for me um, i'm kind of conscious of toxins and food and drink and everything so for example like heineken or something like that i know that's not that's like the mcdonald's of food and a lot of the wines they've there's a lot of toxins in that as well you know like it's a gmo you know you know you know it's not I don't, so I'm conscious in what I'm getting that I never have a headache. I never feel bad. It doesn't stop me getting up in the morning. I still bounce out of bed, you know, happy. But I I think a lot of the times people actually, the way they are, they are drinking. They don't even check this. They just assume, oh yeah, when I drink, I get a headache. But they don't even kind of look at the ingredients and kind of realize there Mm. was healthier versions of if you are going to have, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe twice a week (laughs) as opposed to every day. 
Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, it's all what we put in our bodies and how we really want to honor our bodies. And another thing is for me, it was really getting to the point of, um, do I really want to go to alcohol first at the end of my day, you know, to either relax or unwind or, you know, falsely, you know, because it really isn't the alcohol that's doing it. For me, you realize it's creating that space. It's, it's taking the time to slow things down. It's the ritual of getting a nice glass out, opening a bottle of wine, but I can have that same sense of honoring myself and slowing it down for myself by having the nice glass and some soda water and some lime. And, and maybe that's the time when my husband and I talk, you know, it's not the wine that's doing the talking and the connection. And I think that's where people get confused or we, we start to, to believe that, especially with our friends and socializing. Well, how, like, how do we, have dinner out together if I'm the only one not drinking. Well, hopefully your your friendships and those relations are deeper than alcohol. It's not the alcohol that's creating the connection. It's it's your actual relationship. But I think we we forget that. We, you know, alcohol does that to us. It plays a really insidious role sometimes. And what I'm seeing, I've I've only seen it this year, but I'm seeing non-alcoholic wine. I mean, there's always the non-alcoholic beer. The most yeah. of the beers are kind of toxic, but I've seen one or two that actually taste it. Like I would prefer if I was having a beer when it's a really hot day in the summer to have a non-alcoholic beer. But I've yet, but I found one eventually. But it's I think even with the wine, because as you mentioned, maybe it's the kind of oh, I'm I'm putting the the laptop is down opening the bottle of wine, sitting down maybe to watch a movie with your, you know, your partner, whatever it is, but it's the ritual. It's not necessarily the alcohol. It, it, I think it's just kind of something, because I find, you know, like you say, the months that I'm not doing it, I'm making a decent cup of tea. I just feel just as good. You know, yes. It's, it's strange. Like, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why don't I just always just have this nice cup of tea? Well, or you, you may be hankering, you may be wanting that glass of wine, but you've told yourself, say in that month, okay, I'm not. And so you make the cup of tea or you have something else and you realize, oh, how you say, why, why was I always going for the glass of wine or the beer or the, you know, whatever it may be. And you realize, oh, it, it's not actually about that. It's, it's about me, you know, and taking time for me. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And the, the retreats that you're doing then, is it is it all related to this, that the, the retreats? Are well, about? so the retreats right now, yes, are. And I think, you know, in going forward, uh, my retreats will always be without alcohol because uh, it's just creating for me the important thing right now is space for women to just really connect and and rediscover one another in a way that's really genuine away from the Instagram filters away from social media, you know, just hanging out, going surfing, going hiking, eating really clean and just having deep connection and just remembering how great it is to be women with women. And I think not that men don't need that space, but this is just where my passion is right now. And it probably stems from, you know, my history as a midwife, being in those most intimate personal life journeys with women, I feel a real connection and a, an ability 
to connect on an intimate level with other women. And I think we've lost that. I think that it gets really challenging to let our guards down when our world is so perfect and curated. And, you know, behind our Instagram feed, we're just feeling like rubbish or, you know, we're not filtered and we're not looking perfect. And we do have our sad moments and we do have our stressful, anxious times. And I just want to create space where we can acknowledge that, but then find ways to create happiness and joy that'll sustain us beyond the retreats. So gray drinking isn't necessarily the, the ultimate theme, but it's certainly part of the discussion. And I'm curious, actually, about the kind of detoxing from the social media as well, because, you know, prior to recording, I mentioned that I went to Costa Rica and I loved it. And it was for 16 days, but it was basically no Internet. And I think it was like the first two days you could tell people were a bit jittery. But after that, it was like everyone felt amazing because yeah. I, I, I don't know, it's like social media, like reaching for the glass of wine. You feel kind of that you really need it. But it's once you don't have it, you feel 10 times better. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, I think most of us have social media. I don't think I would be on it, honestly, if it weren't for maybe work or, you know, checking in on my nieces and nephews who live in a different part of the world just to see their pictures or, or certain things. But it does create a lot of stress, anxiety and depression. It's it's true. The research is there. And for younger and younger people, I mean, elementary school children who have their cell phones definitely are are experiencing stress and anxiety they're feeling uh inadequacy insecurities because it is in this this hyper um visual perfect world it's hard to feel like you belong or measure up and and i think it is a beautiful thing to really go off social media for a while you know do that social media fast you will feel infinitely better absolutely and just finally because uh like you mentioned your book is is it january or february that it's coming out so you might just tell us a bit of that because i obviously once it is out i can update and put the link if people (laughs) live you know they they listen constantly even years later so i'll make sure that i put that as well in it okay you're lovely thank you it is called the gray drinking reset a 30-day journey to wellness and it is coming out january 10th and the reason why um January 10th is because honestly, I want to set people up for success. And if you are a gray drinker right now, we are already in November and there's no way that you're probably going to be successful and going through the holidays, abstaining, you know, set yourself up for success. If you know you're a gray drinker, you know, you're going to enjoy those holiday drinks, you know, you're going to find it really hard and you'll be miserable and resentful if you're not having, you know, some good cheer over the holidays, then don't do it. Do it when you want to start the new year. So January 10th, you've gone through Christmas, New Year's, you're back at work, and now now it's time to get serious. So the Great Drinking Reset, you can also get that free 10-day reset I mentioned. If right now you just want to give it a try, it's, we go into things, um, on a, not on a surface level, but not as deep as the 30 day, because in 30 days, things are going to come up. You're going to realize that alcohol impacts your relationships with your partner, with your children, with your family, 
your extended family, with your friends. It, it touches all aspects of your life. And you're going to have to really do some work and reflection there. But for the 10 days, it's really the aim is to create space where you're going to start feeling better because alcohol gets out of your system quickly. You're going to start thinking maybe a little clearer that you didn't even realize. You may have had a little fog. You're going to feel happier and you're going to be able to make a decision. And that decision may even be, you know what, I'm going to do this January 10th. I, I'm going to wait. You know, she was saying, set yourself up for success. Or you may say, you know, forget it. I'm starting now. I, I'm 10 days in. Let's do it. So you can get that on my website, carryshell.com. And then there's a little thing, holiday cheer, some Christmas mocktails where some delicious cocktails. So you can give your guests like a beautiful alternative to alcohol and a beautiful drink that looks festive and, and delicious. And for yourself also, you know, that's part of it, like feeling you have a nice drink in your hand. So it doesn't always have to have alcohol in the glass. Excellent. Excellent. Well, perfect. Is there any other handles? So I totally enjoyed our conversation. So the website, is there other uh, links that you, you want to give? <laughs> well, I think from the website, you can get pretty much everywhere, but I'm on Instagram at meet Carrie shell. And I certainly do. As you mentioned, I have some meditations on my YouTube channel. So we've just lost the connection at the very end, but uh, I'll make sure that I'll put the links um, both on the audio and the video for uh, so you can find uh, Carrie. Uh, be sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating really helps. And you'll find everything about me and all my four podcasts and podcast coaching on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Until next week, take care.